Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm in Scottsdale, sitting in a hotel room, talking to Jeff Madoff, who's in New York. And this is the next episode of Anything and Everything. Jeff, one of the things that we were talking about, because actually there's two projects. There's a project that's a big breakthrough project for you that's going to happen in early 2022. And, you know, it's really gaining steam. It's really gaining momentum. And that is essentially a Broadway musical that's being tested out in Philadelphia, starting with the first run at a regional theater in Philadelphia. I've been part of the conversation almost from the start. And then I've been involved in contributing to the coffee money budget of the entire production ever since then. And we just released our second major market book two weeks ago, The Gap in the Gain, collaboration with Ben Hardy. And in our third day, we were number one in nonfiction in the world on Amazon for 15 minutes, which, you know, Andy Warhol told us to prepare <laughs> for. Congratulations. Within a month, we'll be at the 100,000 mark of sales. So it's really gone really well. And when I think about it this year, it was more normal than it was last year. Like we went through the first one, which has done extremely well, both for the book itself, but also for the contribution of people who have read the book and signed up for Strategic Coach. So this is really an interesting period, you know, two of us having major, major career experiences and Two guys from Ohio who were born in the 1940s <laughs> and were, were enjoying success, which is usually associated with people in their 30s, 40s, or 50s, but we're experiencing it in our eighth decade. But it's really interesting because the whole point is, both in your case and my case, we were all in for what we were doing, you know, that both of us that once we made the decision that we were going to go for this particular result in the marketplace, we were all in. And this is a thought that just occurred to me. Is there something about the fact that we've actually done a lot of decades that actually makes it easier to be all in when you take on something big? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question because oftentimes as people get older, they become more risk averse. Because there's, you know, they feel there's less time in front of them to correct something. And that if they're catastrophic, what's the correction point on it? However, I feel that, you know, whether you look at a Norman Lear or a Clint Eastwood, you know, Norman being 97, Clint being, I think, 90, and they're still actively at work pursuing what they do, not to mention all the people we don't know who are so accomplished who have done that. I think that the positive aspect, and I have to credit my wife, Margaret, for this, is her phrase is, it's really important to have something to look forward to, Mm -hmm. and which is kind of a corollary to your phrase, which is that your future should be bigger than your past. Because that, to me, is another way of saying it's something to look forward to. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it may be naive, but I don't think, fortunately, I'm in good health as you are. And so I don't think of it as, what am I trying this for at my age? It's exciting. It's fun. Mm-hmm. I'm engaged. I want to be doing that. And so I think that our life experience has prepared us, both of us in 
unique ways. I was going to say novel ways because they're both written. (laughs) (laughs) Little literary pun there. So absolutely, I think that we know how to both organize our time better. Plus, we know more people. It's like in your earlier book with Ben, you know, who, not how. I think at least when I was younger, I don't know about you, when I was younger, one of the big lessons I had to learn is how to delegate Mm -hmm. and free myself up to be able to do these other things. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is that when I turn 70, so I'll be, you know, at my next birthday, I'll be 78. But when I turned 70, I, you know, just reflected on the fact that there wasn't any particular individual achievement or new individual skill that I felt I wanted to learn or acquire or to have a particular individual success that was important. It wasn't done yet. And I said, you know, I'm kind of like handled. You know, I've got good skills. I've proven I have good skills. But the biggest thing is we've created a really powerful organization in the marketplace. And I said, you know, I want the achievements now to be for the team, you know, and I'm part of the team. I'm crucial to the team. You know, my part of the team, and this, I share this with Bab Smith, my partner, is that we have an unusual ability to give purpose to other people's capabilities. Okay. And when I sat in on the two full workshops of your play, when for the first time they brought together the full script and you had all the cast and the choreographer was there and you brought in the musicians who do justice to the score and everything else. You know, my thought was none of these people know each other. None of these people are really involved in this without the fact that Jeff gave purpose to a particular project. And what I think is that maybe one of the reasons I can be all in is because I feel very responsible that all the people I've collected around me have a very successful experience. Which is great, you know, because I think there's a lot of things that come with that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not at all talking monetarily at this point. Yeah. I think that sense of purpose that you're talking about, yeah. and along with a sense of purpose, if you accomplish what you're trying to do, there's a fulfillment mm-hmm. and happiness that can come with that. Because I do look at money as a byproduct not the goal. Yeah. And of course, you know, I want to make money, of course, but I think that, you know, and I'm sure you've seen it too, many people who are financially quite successful, but are also quite unhappy because I don't know that they ask themselves the right questions on their journey. The other thing is, let's say I was 30 or 40 and back then I wouldn't have enough of me to compare myself to. So I would go outside and compare myself to other people. You know, and the recent book that we just came out is called The Gap and the Gain. And that is that your mind is going to work in one of two ways. And if you don't make a decision, it's almost guaranteed that you'll use your mind in the way that most people do. And that is that they don't understand the difference between ideals and goals. They don't understand the, the difference between aspirations and actual measurements. Okay. And so when they actually do achieve things, they actually measure something that actually occurred against something that's imaginary. It's a theory. 
and they always come up short. It's like they measure their progress in walking against the horizon. You know, uh, I don't care how far you've walked, you haven't made any progress. And the same thing I think happens that the ideal is a way that our brains come to grips with time. You know, we have to have a sense of time so that we can actually put illumination on what is achievable. But when you achieve, you don't measure against the illumination. You measure from where you started, okay? And what I realize now is that I have a long history, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, it's approaching 50 years. And I can measure backwards of where I started. And I've, you know, I've taken five, six major jumps. That's all real progress. And it's my progress. And it's unique progress. So that frees me because I'm comparing backwards to myself. I said, okay, now how much further can we go based on what I've already done? But I'm not making reference to anyone else's progress. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I got from the gap in the game, which I think a lot of people lack, is perspective and context. Mm -hmm. You know, especially in the career world, you know, the measurement for that is often, you know, what you thought you were going to make doing something. And the byproduct of not achieving and looking at it as a gap can also be envy, which is, I think, a pretty destructive way to be. Yeah. I heard envy once described, it's taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good definition for toxic behavior, period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a marvelous book written Many, many years ago, but wasn't translated from German into English till about two, three years ago. Big, thick book called Envy. And it's by a German by the name of Helmut Scheck, who died about 20 years ago. But he talks about that envy is the most constant human mental structure that is measured from the most ancient tales. And what envy is... A lot of people think it's jealousy. Actually, they're almost opposite in meaning. Jealousy and envy are almost opposite. Jealousy is that you have something and you're afraid that someone else is going to take away what you have. Mm -hmm. Okay, so example, in your context, you know, you've put together a great team for personality, but now that Broadway's opened up again, the other Broadway powerhouses and power places are offering big deal to the company you put together and you're afraid you're going to lose the talent that you've put together for your meeting. That's jealousy. You're jealous of what you already have. Envy is somebody else has what you don't have and you don't want what they have. You want them not to have what they have. (laughs) I mean, it's the Cain and Abel, you know, it's the Cain and Abel, you know, right back to the Joseph and his brothers, you know, Joseph and his brothers, the biblical tales, those are about envy. And it's the most unforgivable thing. There's no forgiveness for envy. You know, I mean, in religions and everything. And the reason is that you're trying to damage someone else, but you're damaging yourself. And there's no good in it. There's no turnaround. Jealousy, you know, you can come back from jealousy, you can get insight and say, you know, I follow sports, and there were a couple very recent games where it was a referee's call that decided the game. And the losing coach of one of them, the reporter said, you know, that was a very, very clear case where if the referee had not made that decision, you would have won the game. 
And he said, you know what my philosophy is? Never put yourself in a position where a referee can change the game. Be so far ahead <laughs> that it doesn't matter what the referee does. Well, to a certain extent, there's a loss experience, but the person said, no to self, don't put yourself in a position where this can matter. Right. That seems like wisdom. Yeah, yeah, especially if you can actualize it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because sometimes, like in the games you're talking about, that's what happens. But I would say that probably the way you went about putting this team together for this particular project is based on an enormous amount of trial and error, you know, and setbacks that goes back 30 or 40 years of putting other teams together for other creative projects. Well, I think that, you know, it's interesting. There's a couple of things going on there. One is the maturation that I went through as the person running the business. You know, how do you get the best from people? How do you attract the best people? And, you know, what kind of an environment do you set up? I mean, I'm doing a play and play should be fun. And that doesn't mean that there aren't ups and downs in it and everything else. But, you know, we all, in a literal sense, have to be reading from the same script. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, we did a reading of the screenplay of mine. And there were 200 people in the audience. And it is less than 20 minutes before. And backstage, an actor comes up to me. And the actor says to me, you know, I don't think my character would say that. And I need to know, you know, I need to be motivated as to why that character says that, because I don't think that character would say it. And so I said, come with me a second. And I pulled the curtain. I said, you see that? 200 people out there. We go on stage in less than 20 minutes. So your motivation is we have a full theater. And I can tell you that that character would say that because I wrote it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's what that guy said. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I know that he would say that because I created that character. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what he said. Yeah. And he like looks at me. Well, the other thing is you also filled the theater. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and so he was like surprised because that was unlike any answer he had gotten before. Mm -hmm. And I said, so that's your motivation. 200 people waiting for this to start. And I am assuring you that that's what that character would say because I created that character. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I think I have learned through maturation in terms of enlisting people and getting them involved. And, you know, I have been putting together crews for 40 years. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that you've observed other people put together crews and you've seen good ways of doing it and bad ways of doing it. That's right. I saw that so much in business, you know, and... I would be in meetings, and if somebody said something that the lead person didn't agree with, what they would do is, instead of saying something like, well, it's interesting, or that's something we could consider, was like, well, you don't even know who we are. I don't believe you would bring something like that up. That's stupid. And, you know, you see, not just the person who's being talked to, everybody else has now retreated. 
Yeah. Because nobody wants to put their head on a block, you know, because most people are interested in keeping their jobs and other people are interested in asserting their authority. So instead of getting the best out of people, they've convinced themselves that either fatigue or lack of engagement, not getting a response means agreement. Neither of those mean agreement, but what it does mean is I'm not going to subject myself to that kind of behavior. And so you don't get the best from people. So I saw, and it was very instructive, ways not to get the best out of people. And it happens to be my nature. You know, and you and I have talked about this many times and off camera too, which is about finding common ground and concern and having an empathic response. Because, you know, from the time you're a kid, if you're creative and you put ideas out there, you're going to get criticized. You know, I was fortunate my parents didn't shut that down. But it can be parents, it can be peers, it can be teachers. And people, I believe, are pretty much fixed in who they are. And even when you get into business leaders who can wield with an iron fist, you know, what they want, I think that sometimes they don't realize that it's not just because you're paying somebody you're going to get good performance. A lot of times people want to be heard they want their ideas evaluated and they want to be listened to. And that's true whether you're creating any kind of business or you're putting a play up. You know, we're shooting a commercial. It's all the same in that way, which is a certain respect for people and their ideas. Yeah. And the thing that, you know, and this is a question for you, you'll be standing backstage and looking through the curtain and it'll be a full house, but this is not a a reading, this is not a workshop, this is the actual deal. I'm just asking a question. Do you notice your your thinking really simplifying now as you get closer? Because the project has a momentum of its own now that involves your entire organization, but it also involves the venue and the organization that's actually putting this on. So they're committed to this. They're talking it up and everything. And I'm just wondering if you simplify in your thinking of maybe there were five things that were important six months ago, and now there's three things. And at a certain point, it's like one or two things that are really important when you get closer. Yeah. I mean, I haven't run the marathon, but I have trained for it with friends who were. And when we would do long training runs, If you thought about, I'm going 18 miles today, or I'm going 22 miles today, and you just look at it as that, it was overwhelming. But you had certain landmarks along the path. So it's three miles to this, it's four miles to that, it's two miles to that. And you break up the journey into smaller increments to make it manageable. Well, I find that I do the same thing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I had to get the latest copy of the script done and sent off to Sheldon Epps, the director, because we're starting to coordinate with set building, projection, lighting, and costume. So those all those entities work together. Plus, we had to get the script breakdown to the casting agency because we start tomorrow, Monday, the 8th, with our castings. So I look at each task that has to be done as opposed to being overwhelmed by the overall thing, because otherwise it's like too big to take in and it's just overwhelming. So I know which thing I have to focus on. And part of knowing that, by the way, isn't just a learning process. It's also 
when you are working with the right people and you set priorities, that establishes your what you yep. need to get done when. So it's not that it becomes simpler in the overall, but you need to, by necessity, so as not to become overwhelmed, realize what has to get done when that feeds the whole engine moving forward. Does that make sense? Yeah. The reason I was bringing that up was that uh, I just saw a documentary on the successful explosion of the first atomic bomb in New Mexico in 1945. And about 36 hours before when the first bomb, whether it actually works or not, one of the physicists, very well respected, came to Robert Oppenheimer, who was the overall physicist in charge, didn't talk to Groves, Leslie Groves, who was the military, didn't talk to him. But he said, you know, he said, I've been doing some figures here. And he says, I'm deeply concerned, according to my figures here, that when we set the bomb up, it actually is an uncontrollable process. And it's actually going to destroy the earth. It's going to destroy the solar system and everything else. All the atoms are just going to go out. We're starting something here. That can't. And Oppenheimer said, very, very interesting. He said, very interesting. He said, hmm, who would know whether that's right or not? And Oppenheimer, I mean, you know, I mean, here, the whole war is depending on, I mean, they've just spent mass amounts of money, you know. It does make a difference whether that. So he calls in a chemist, and a chemist is on the project. And he says, tell me what you told him here. And he says, well, I'll go look at that, you know. And he comes back, and he said, I just want you to know it won't happen. And the, the other guy said, why? He said, you made a mistake with the decimal point here. <laughs> but it was very, very interesting, you know, that, I mean, the world was depending on, I mean, one way, the fate of the world, regardless of whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, at that stage all sorts of lesser concerns were not on the table. You know, that was a big concern, but it was so interesting. And I think probably that Oppenheimer knew that the guy had made a mistake, but he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to ream him out or say, you know, right. I'm sorry, it's too late to do that. He actually stopped the process long enough that someone could come in and actually look at it. Another mind could come in and look at it. And the reason was he was so focused, this is going to go ahead. And I hope he's wrong. <laughs> but if he's wrong, there'll be no one to say we were mistaken. <laughs> if his contention is right, guess what? Right. <laughs> Nobody's going to send me to the principal's office afterwards. Because <laughs> there yeah. will have been ash at that point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we all are, you know. But I find it interesting that I really like the countdown for the deadlines. When you're in motion and all the forces that have been assembled and mobilized and put in motion, people know their part, they know the teamwork, they know everything. That's a great period when you're at that point. Uh, yeah, and you know, it's funny because as I've been out promoting my book, I was asked, <laughs> there's a couple of questions that I'm asked fairly often. One is, so what was the turning point for you, the inciting incident, when you knew that you were going to be doing something? I said, birth. <laughs> you know, <laughs> once I came out, you know, yep. there was a world of opportunities yep. and we'll see what unfolds. And 
I think, you know, that breaking up into those segments so that life doesn't become so overwhelming mm-hmm. is good. But I think there's another thing that you and I have both done, which is building teams. Mm-hmm. And how do you build, and I think this works for the entrepreneurs that may be listening, and that is, how do you effectively build a good team? Mm-hmm. And how do you attract the kind of people you want to attract when at that time you may not have the money to be a magnet? So what is it, how is it that you're going to attract those people? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The thing that has become more and more apparent to me that I'm deeply appreciative of having people who want to be on the team and people who have their skills but more and more I'm realizing that they're deeply appreciative that they get to be on a team and they get to be part of something that other people created and they've created a special role for them. And that's more and more I'm convinced about that, that we all have bills to pay and we have money, but money is not the reason why we get excited about something. <laughs> yeah, certainly if I would have started off wanting to tell Lloyd's story and write and produce this play and bring it to fruition. If I would have been thinking from the beginning, oh, because I'm going to make a fortune doing this, <laughs> you know, that would be completely delusional yeah. and worthy of being committed to a padded cell. You know, I was seduced by the story and his life, which is also part of what got you and Babs involved. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was the story that did that. And, you know, when I interviewed directors and, you know, you've met Sheldon Epps, the director, yeah. who's fabulous to work with. Yeah. Well, he's been with the project since the beginning, mm-hmm. since the first time we did a performance. Same thing with Sheldon Beckton, who is our musical director. So I think, you know, they all have their different reasons. But I think being a part of something that they think is important, because when you're in the early development stage, It's not like you're going to get booked for two and a half months and get paid well, and then you're done and it's on to something else. Getting involved in this play or any new play is a substantial commitment of time going forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like you got a limited window of time and you're paid for that window because we didn't even know if we were going to get a theater deal. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.